Is It Transphobic? will be addressing issues of transphobia and transmisogyny. We may also address issues of racism, classism, ableism, and various other intersectional issues in this podcast. So this is a trigger warning. The panelists on Is It Transphobic? will also use strong language. So listener discretion is advised. Hello, everyone. My name is Ashley Lauren Rogers. I'm the creator and the producer of the Is It Transphobic podcast. And today I'm being joined by Nikki Wolfog, author and chocolatier, um, and pretty much queen of the side eye, queen K W E E N, side eye. <laughs> Love it. Uh, now, that, uh, funny enough, like I know that I'm jumping very quickly immediately as this interview is starting. <laughs> But I, I had a question as to whether it was pronounced chocolatier or whether it's like chocolatier or like. <laughs> you, you, you have it right both ways. Um, okay. When it's spoken as far as when you're speaking French, uh, when you're interacting with French folks, um, it's chocolatier. But mm -hmm. I found that when I say that, when I'm interacting with people here in the States, they're like, oh, you all uppity, aren't you? Mm. You a chocolatier. That's what you. OK, well, fine. So we just say chocolatier. And, and, and it just kind of keeps, you know, the class issues, you know, from being addressed. It's fine. So, yeah, um, depending on how your pronunciation is and, and what groups you're in. So, yeah. Oh, OK. Either okay. one is fine. I end up saying chocolatier because I'm in the States. But mm. it's like you get one person that speaks French and like my one semester of French, suddenly I'm flexing like chocolatier. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, as if, you know. Totally fluent. Not really. Um, no. Well, I don't even even like it always pulls me out on those Food Network shows whenever I hear someone who knows their thing. And I am very sure they are doing it because they have to because that is the like the respectful way to pronounce bruschetta. But yes. when they're like, oh, hi, how's it going today? We're going to make bruschetta. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. What? You hear me do that. I'll be like, hey, you know, when you, you know, you're working with the praline chocolatier. Um, yes, croissant. Um, <laughs> this is what I'm talking about. This is why I need you on here. Okay. <laughs> so we can talk more yeah. French things. I have no sense whatsoever. So yes, <laughs> I know all the cuss words. That those are very important. Learned it from a, a French woman, um, where she'd be like, it was French lessons, and I swear it was all in in, in the states. And she was great. She'd be smoking a cigarette. <laughs> but I do the adverb again and French. <laughs> She'd be smoking, and I'd be going through the verbs. <laughs> Just it was the best. I feel like if I'm going to learn French, I learned French in high school, and they did not allow you to smoke there. And I just feel like I lost something in the French, honestly. <laughs> This was like when I was taking private lessons, and she just she'd be sitting there with her dog Brandy, and she'd be like, again. <laughs> so every time I see like was it the movie French Kiss I know it's so cheesy I still watch it and that scene where Meg Ryan says you know you people make my ass twitch um that was my French teacher she was like you people make my ass twitch all right so yeah yeah same thing <laughs> I love it I love it so much <laughs> 
So let's, uh, we'll, we'll come back to the chocolatier uh, experience that you have, but I want to talk okay. a little bit more about your, your writing and you as an author first. Okay. Uh, so what was your journey to becoming a writer? Like, how did you, do, do, were you a reader growing up? Is this something that you just sort of fell into? Um, I dove into stories um, as a kid, but I also liked to write what was, you know, kind of falling out of my head. And I would do that all the time. I'd write these stories. I'd make things up. I would take little bits and pieces of some stuff that was happening in my world, but I would also elaborate on them, make them better, you know, better dialogue, <laughs> mm. <laughs> so, um, you know, uh, a happier outcome, so to speak. And that's what I what I did. And I've always done that. So later on, I decided, oh, well, I'd like to do this professionally, but I thought, well, I don't really have that much experience. And it was in my late teens. I had you know, already graduated high school, done all these things, but I was like, well, I need more life experience. I regret saying that um, because in the last like 20 plus years, I have too much life experience. I'm like, mm, too much. Um, that's, like, it, it reads like an after school special. It's really depressing. <laughs> Overindulging in the life experiences—that's yeah. the problem. That's the <laughs> exactly. So I'm just going to give it to you now, kids, and I mean that all of us. Um, be specific. <laughs> be like just a little life experience, but not too much. Just, mm. just not too much. Um, so yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I, I definitely understand that that feeling, that idea of like I haven't lived enough yet, and like I, I think especially a lot of people that come out of a, a college or come out of a, a specific program feel that way a lot of the time, where it's like uh, I haven't really even lived yet. I've only been in this one institution out of these other institutions, and it, it does it does feel like yes, you need to get a little bit more life experience, but really like yeah, like if you're if you're continuing to work on the craft, that's great. But really also if you're coming to it later, if you're coming to it by exactly like you say, having a lot of life experience yeah there's there's a learning curve but at the same time like it, it's it's something that you can still overcome yeah and i i absolutely agree it had been you know when i finally realized i really don't need that life experience that i thought i did i mean up to a certain point but i was it was i didn't realize that it was an excuse and also <laughs> As I got older, I realized that people were going to use that as well as other things as an excuse. And so at least the one thing about going through so many rough parts, I now don't give a fuck. Mm. I have hit that age and I've hit that point of you can't tell me nothing. <laughs> it's like <laughs> if the story doesn't work for you, that's fine. If, that, if what I'm writing, you're not the audience, that's okay. But you're not going to tell me how this goes. <laughs> I remember like... I'd gone off to a, uh, one of the top five at the time, and I had this story. And at the time, I named it Now That Your Joystick's Broke. I now nicknamed it Joystick, and it's easier. But anyway, so I wrote this story, and it was my response to what had happened with Gamergate because, you know, there's nothing I can do about that. And I've been doxxed before, but I had watched this all unfold, and I was livid. But what am I going to do? So I'm watching this unfold, and I decided that I was going to write a story based on this you know late 20 something woman who is a gamer who has been doxxed and is trying to get her life back but i wanted to do it in a way that wasn't like morose so to speak i didn't want to like downplay it in such a way that it was dismissive but i wanted to address the issues but do it in a humorous way so i did that but i decided to i am so a dork um i love she's the man 
I know. I know. Is I that know. the one with uh, David Cross and like the, the, or am I thinking of something else? Wait, no, no, that's the older one, right? The, the one from the 80s, or am I thinking of something else? I think that's Help another one. I thought that was, oh my uh, gosh. Yeah, this one was with Amanda Burns. Oh, okay. And oh. It was, it was a soccer player. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, um, and I liked that weird version, and <laughs> I like it. So I kind of went with that level of Twelfth Night, and I wanted to make it comical, so I made it where, but it wasn't, look, dude in a dress, look, chicken some pants. Instead, it was like going in this different angle of what's it like to be the other in a very male-focused environment. So doing it that way, but also you know, using humor of, you know, you're kind of falling for this dude, but he doesn't know that, you know, he thinks you're the dude, but, you know, when you first met, you were not the dude, and now you a dude, so you got to, like, keep it together because he's not into dudes, but that's okay, but he's just, like, and you look like your brother, but at the same, like, just, and it was so much fun to write. I know it sounds so weird, but it's, like, it was so much fun to write, and so I realized that was my way of telling a story. It took me a long time to get to that point because I thought, oh, okay, I have to write things in a certain way. Um, and, you know, I have friends that write traditional romances and everything's fine. And I'm like, every time I write something, it didn't feel right. It felt strained. It felt forced. When I wrote the joystick book, I wrote this character from a place of not just understanding, but this place of fun and a bit of joy and a little bit of camaraderie. And I realized I could address issues. At, as well as, you know, give you a funny ha-ha without it being punching down. Mm. So it, it was one of those things. And that's one of the ways that I discovered my own writing voice. Mm. Well, and, and comedy in general is very tough. And I think that a lot of people immediately look at a story like uh, She's uh, she's the Man, which I did look up and I was thinking of the same movie. David Cross is just like a secondary character in it. Uh, <laughs> Um, but yeah, yeah, like when, when they look at a movie like that or they look at a movie where it's mistaken identity in some way uh, because of a person playing with gender, uh, it's immediately looked at and people are immediately questioning whether it's like, oh, like is, is that transphobic? Is, are we crossing a line? And I feel like you absolutely can still play with gender and especially things like video games offer a lot of that, yeah. uh, a lot of that possibility. And, and so, yeah. Yeah. So I realized in my excitement, especially because I got the answer to a question that I had been wondering for quite a long time, I steamrolled past what I initially wanted to start with, which is how we met. So we'll get back mm -hmm. to you as a you as a, an author, you as a professional. But let's talk about you as a human and me as a human. <laughs> you, yes, me. Uh... <laughs> but yeah, we, we met, I forget which event, but it was at a steampunk event right yes, like it is yeah the one that shall not be named mm -hmm. um but that panel was fire like i still think about the ascot gang that's what i call it um, <laughs> yes like, it we were on fire i was like i will never be this brilliant again and it's only because of you all like it was oh. amazing was it liana was there gail mm -hmm. was there you and myself yep so, yeah so it was a friend of the show, Leanna Renee Heber, a uh, friend of us, but I don't know about the show. I, I assume she'd like the show. If you listen to it, Gail Carriger. Uh, and yeah. yeah. Yeah, she's been, I I now have to, I'm, I'm like, you know what, girl, I got to put you on my marketing plan with the chocolates because when, and I'm like, but you got to let me know when you're about to mention me because she mentioned me in June. 
I usually don't have sales in June. So I kind of like wrap up the shop and she mentioned me in June and I sold out and I was like, well, holy shit, I got all these ice packs. I got to throw them in the freezer real quick. And, you know, so anytime she mentions my chocolates, they keep mm -hmm. selling out. I mean, they sell out anyway, but especially when she does it, it sells out faster. So I was like, girl, you got to give me a heads up when you like, do a <laughs> shout out because I'm happy, but ugh. We gotta, <laughs> we uh, yeah. I'm we trying not to. Out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> FYI. So, yeah. <laughs> Let's work out a strategy before you start telling people I'm amazing. Because, I yeah. mean, we both know it, but, you know, maybe <laughs> yeah, can I be platform. amazing around November? <laughs> exactly. Your platform is amazing. So, yeah. And, <sighs> and it's been it's been wonderful. But, yeah. 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 Um, I still think about that, that panel with so much fondness. And it, it definitely let me know that I was on the right track uh, as a writer, as far as my voice was concerned, because hearing all of you, these, these powerful women talk about their work, hearing Gail say, you know, if it doesn't work, if my, my writing, my, my work doesn't work for you, you're not my audience. And she just like laid it out there and then she just kept going. And I was like, well, okie doke. So I just realized, keep that as your mindset. You're not for everyone. What is it? Uh, Dita Von Tees says you could be the ripest, most juiciest, delicious peach, but there are going to be people that just don't like peaches. Like, just, you know, accept that and move it on forward. So I'm like, okay, that works. Yeah. I I'm think thinking I, about peaches. Mm. <laughs> I, I will freely admit I am one of those people that is not a fan of peaches, but that is okay because that means all the peaches can go to the people that love peaches, and that's okay. fine. Like that's, I'm also a pineapple on pizza kind of girl. And I know like that's okay, good. So I'm from California. We do that shit. <laughs> <laughs> I am such a hippie. Oh my gosh. But yeah, like it, it really is. I think that there's a, a pressure for a lot of people, especially when they're first trying to figure out their voice, when they're first trying to get their material sold to literally sell it to yes. everyone and anyone. And you want to believe that your piece can be for everyone. But the reality is it's just no matter what, no matter who you are, there are people that are just not going to be into it. And that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's the only time I, like, I know I said earlier, I'll fight back. Mm -hmm. The only time that I do fight back is when I'm told, well, black people aren't interested in this. Mm. And it's from non-black people. So I'm like, what you know? <laughs> just like, do not make me get ethnic. Mm -hmm. I will reach across this table and tell you about yourself. Or in my what I had been told with Joystick was um, women aren't into gaming. Women aren't into computers. And I was like, uh -huh. bitch, what you know? Because it was one of those things of, I was basing it on not just my experience, but also growing up in Silicon Valley, mm. also having friends now that are in the gaming world that are women. Um, you know, pulling from that, looking at obviously at Gamergate, looking at all these different things and seeing and pulling from that experience. And I, I just, it got to that point where that meeting was more about telling me what I didn't know from a person who had no experience and then being told, well, that's not how security works in IT. And it was like, uh, I have a background in IT along with other things. <laughs> um, what you're suggesting is like a swordfish kind of non-realistic, you know, working a, you know, a GUI board to hack instead of, you know, the boring MS-DOS kind of thing and, and, you know, hours upon hours of just typing shit in. Um, mm -hmm. But okay, 
Thanks so much. So. Like, like that's the thing. Hacking isn't actually the act of hacking isn't actually sexy. It's no. the like, it's usually the results. That oh yeah. Sexy. It's like yeah. It was just one of those things where I'm like, mm -hmm. oh, okay. And you know, my mom worked for Intel. You know, mm -hmm. late seventies, early eighties, and through on. So that's what I grew up in, um, in the Bay Area. But mm. but okay, person who does not have any of this background, please mm -hmm. tell me more. Mm. So it, if I hadn't have had the life experience, I wouldn't have been able to walk out there with my head held high. And so I end up writing that story. And there, you know, because of that anger that I had amplified, I added more vulnerability as far as what I had gone through, what my friends had gone through, and it it actually worked. So it's mm. like, yeah, okay, so you're going to sit there and give me a hard time about this story or just the subject matter that you don't know. Well, I'm going to go in harder and <laughs> I'm going to just push even more so. And so, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, that, that, I didn't even expect to talk about that. I very rarely talk about joystick, but anyway. Well, I'm really happy that you did. That's, that's, <laughs> it sounds really interesting. I actually, I didn't know. I, I remember you talking about joystick, but I don't, I definitely don't have it on me right now. So I'm like, oh, oh that's okay. fine. That is absolutely yeah. fine. I, yeah. I kind of hesitated to finish the storyline because it was mm. four women. And I want it because I don't really see female friendships very much. Mm -hmm. And I don't end up having that interaction as much as I'd like to, at least in my younger years. Mm -hmm. And so I decided to write four friends, um, all named Jennifer. Because you know, <laughs> you know, you get someplace mm -hmm. and people named Jennifer. And I had like this whole thing of these women are named Jennifer, but everybody calls them by you know, different nicknames. So that mm -hmm. was kind of like their little bond and they had met in college and, you know, so on and so forth. So now that I, you know, my feelings aren't hurt, I got enough time. I'm like, you know what? I should probably finish the last three stories. Mm. So, <sighs> yeah, it's going to be weird. Um, I already have the covers out, so I should probably like write stories to them. I'm just saying. Mm. Well, actually, that does kind of move into the next one of the next questions that I do have about your your writing. Uh, like, how how do you go about like what is your method? Is it something like that where you you build the covers first, you work from an image, or is it just sort of like what what is your style? Like, how do you get there? All right. So what I'm doing now is not what I used to do. Mm -hmm. um, but in order to, I've been getting better with organizing. So one of the things that I've learned and also what kind of lights a fire under me is trying to figure out um, covers because I'll come up with an idea and it's like, okay. And then I kind of slog through making this story as best as I can. But by the time that I finish it, it's like, oh, I don't have any visuals. Oh, I got to get some visuals. Oh, I have to do the book covers. Oh, wait, this person can't do the book covers all in a row. So I've learned get that stuff done ahead of time. So it's a little weird with self-publishing. I'm like, okay, so I had to be mindful. But usually even before then, you all obviously have to have at least a little some, you know, uh, bit of information to give the book cover designer. So I'll come up with an idea and I'll mull it around and see if it has legs. And, you know, obviously with Joystick, it was Gamergate type of situation. When it came to um, the Bittersweet Mysteries, Maison Death, I had had this one beautiful cover. It was done by, it was done by uh, Claudia. She is an Italian illustrator. She is badass. Um, but when I needed the last, like, three done, she, obviously, she's extremely popular and she was a little too busy. So, you know, it was enough time. So I had covers redone recently. I can't show them yet, but it motivates me to get the other three books done because the covers 
that were redone are gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous. I had to go with somebody else and they're talented as well. And, and I just love the theme. So going with that, it's like, okay, having that start of an idea, but then, you know, talking with the book cover designer, having them create something and it helps to kind of bring that forward. Um, also gives me more uh, ideas on how to play with what I see in the cover. Because sometimes the designer will come up with something that I'm like, oh, I didn't think about that. Oh, that works. So, so yeah. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. Because I know I, I've met people who start with like, no, I can't think about the marketing. I can't think about the business. I can't think about anything. And I've also met people kind of in, in what you describe, where it's a little bit more like, okay, as we're going through, we need to think about like, all right, what is the cover going to look like? Because as much as someone can say, you can't judge a book by its cover, at the exact same time, people do. Yeah. And that's, it's a reality. Yeah. And yeah. You're absolutely right. And that was the thing because I was told by other people, you know, they were the mindset of you start with the story first and then you, you, you basically slog through it and you do that first and then you do the marketing. I have a background in communications and marketing and I'm like, you know what? I know that these people, I trust them and they mean well, but I'm like, this is not going to work. This mm. is not, for me, it's not a, it's not the best approach. Um, and I believe in, <laughs> it's interesting that they call it transmedia. Um, now, now, now they call it cross media, but I'm like, mm -mm, we yeah. keep in it. It's transmedia. Thank you. It's entirely very. our media. Thank mm -hmm. you. <laughs> Bitches, this is transmedia. So I love the idea of, you know, this marketing where it, it applies all your sensory. So I'm like, okay, I'd rather do it that way. So now when I start up, you know, with the story, you know, I've got that little, little seed and then I've got this book cover and then I'm thinking about not just uh, fleshing out the story but also figuring out is there a food product that goes well with this um, is there a song or a playlist that you know I could put together that works for this uh, what else can I do or you know what kind of uh, aspects that not only help me stay in that 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 vibe in order to be able to produce the work that I need to with the right tone on each page but then at the same time, once it's all collectively done, I've got more to work with instead of, okay, I finished the story. Now I got to start from scratch and try to figure out stuff. And by that time I'm exhausted. So it's partially a motivator. Yeah. Yeah. It, it sounds very similar to, there's a, a thing that I learned in uh, directing in, in directing for live performance, where if you're the director, you need something, whether it's just a line from the play, whether it's not even from the play, it's a painting. It's yeah. something that ties everything together. And so that your choices, when you talk to other people that are making the, the pieces that are a part of that live performance, mm -hmm they have that anchor they can say okay well how does my costume design relate to that image how does uh my acting relate to that one sentence that we're pulling from like and it, it just yeah like it resonates with me a lot in that that sense yeah it, i think when it comes to the bittersweet mysteries now that i'm finally coming back because uh, there's a lot too much going on um when that dropped everything that could go wrong did go wrong hmm. on top of it um I was coming back from my honeymoon in Japan to find out that the way that the, the manuscript loaded it, I don't know what it was thinking. We had already, I had it proofed three different times and it was clean. It went out in print with so many errors and like extra paragraphs. Like it was 
horrifying. And then at the same time, there was a family crisis literally happening the minute that we touched down from Japan coming back home. So I could not address that. Um, reviews were like, this is good, but there's like errors and somebody needs to edit this. And I'm like, we did. <laughs> but it, by that time, it's like, I don't know how, to how many people it went out to. And so, of course, I had my tail between my legs and I didn't say a word. So I'll probably end up mentioning a little bit of what was going on, not so much as an excuse, but what was going on um, and why certain things didn't get finished up. So that's been settled. But one of the things that I learned uh, with the stories, it's not just the book covers, but I needed to make sure that the titles were correct. Um, I had had these titles for the bittersweet mysteries, the steampunk you know, food mysteries. And I realized I liked my last... Um, uh, book name, but the you know the second and third one I was like you know I like it, but it was too French, so and it was it was a little too much where if you were into fencing or if you knew a little bit of French you would get it, but it was too obscure and I'm like no bring it bring it back so it's a little bit more generalized. So the second story I renamed uh, Carrion Flowers C A R R I O N. Flowers, F L O U R. <laughs> See, yeah. puns are going to go a long way with me. Yes. Like, I mean, hey, you know, I I don't know what the original title was in French. At the same time, immediately, I'm a I'm very drawn to a pun. So, yes. and 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 people that love reading mysteries, especially cozies, they love them some puns. I was like, no, really, and they were like, mm, bitch, yes, we do. I was like, well, okay. And so, like, one night, I was like. You know, I was listening to, um, oh gosh, I forgot her name, but I love her song, Carrie and Flowers. And it's spelled, you know, the appropriate way. Mm -hmm. And I'm listening to it and I was like, that's it. This is a food-based mystery story. And, you know, Carrie and, you know, it's the death flower, the corpse flower smells like death. And I was mm -hmm. like, but we got to put flowers as in like, you know, the dusty stuff, because that would make sense. And we've got the chefs. So I was like, yeah, we're going to do that. And, you know, so it, it works. It's one of those things of, because I'm starting to think about marketing ahead of time, mm. it gives me something a little bit more to play with. So, yeah. And just to clarify, was that Chelsea Wolf that does? Yes. Okay. Yes, it was. Yeah. I love that song. Like I put that on repeat. Mm. Don't be in the car with me. I'm one of those <laughs> that like hits repeat for like three hour drive. I'm like, we just need to hear this forever. So. She was a part of uh, so two minutes to late night, which is a uh, we like weird. <laughs> just to throw that out, they're a uh, hilarious sort of late night talk show that focuses on heavy metal, <sighs> and so like their their host is Guarcinio Hall. Uh, no. they, they, oh yeah, no, he he does the full like corpse paint and like business suit. <laughs> <laughs> Oh yeah, no, they're they're spectacular. I love them. Um, I'm just double checking as we're talking because uh, they do a bedroom cover like every Monday. Um, wow! And they did a cover with Chelsea Wolf uh, of Crazy Train, and it's fascinating. Like it's one of those wow. things. Nothing is ever going to touch the original because it's just that's Crazy Train. Yeah. But like. They do a really interesting job. They like slow it down by about half, and it's it's really cool to check out. See, um, I dig that. I I really do. I I 
I love those kind of weird covers where you're like, that shouldn't work. Like the cardigans when they did Iron Man, I was like, whoa. <laughs> what I've yes. heard Oh yeah. Like every time I, because <laughs> nerd really, really likes the cardigans, like to the point where I'm like, somebody has a crush and needs like a little like towel. Because when he talks about Bjork or the lead singer of the Cardigans, I'm like, mm, you kind of drooling, baby. But anyway, so the Cardigans did a cover of Iron Man, and I just find it, it, I have to like take a moment and I just have to listen to it because I'm like, that's badass, but that's weird, but it's weirdly badass. So yeah, I'm, I'm gonna have to check that out. Yeah, with uh, like two minutes to late night, they've been, and not to make this entire no, 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 that's but, fine. Yeah, I want to hear it. Like, but two minutes to late night, they've done some really good covers like wow holy crap this is better than the original style covers uh like honestly rocket queen is so spectacular um yeah. <laughs> they did a cover of a rush song with the guy from coheed and cambria with les claypool and one of the guys from mastodon oh and danny carey um cow <laughs> i love les claypool i mean yeah you put the bass up front, I'm like, that's that's what I'm talking about. But yeah, they're um and they've also done like a metal cover of Rolling in the Years by um Steely Dan. Wow. Yeah. I, I have to admit I'm a I'm a huge fan of Steely Dan, so I'd be like, wow. I'm surprised how many people out? Have it feels like <laughs> that they're fans of Steely Dan. Oh my gosh. Oh it's one of those moments where, you know, it sounds like to quote somebody I knew, you know. Did somebody put LSD in my popcorn? Because I feel like somebody put LSD in my popcorn just now. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, we you you mentioned uh, Muse on Death, uh, and yes. talk to me a little bit about Muse on Death because that okay. one I have not been able to read yet. That's but okay. Um, it's clean up. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we switched the cover. Don't be mad because um, other people really love the illustrated cover, and I totally did. And when I asked Claudia to do it, she's like, oh, "Okay," and she did the sketch, and I'm like, "Campier." She's like, "Wait, what?" I'm like, "Campier, baby." She's like, "What?" I'm like, "Yes, camp that shit out." <laughs> I have to say that probably that was that cover is more made for me than anybody else. It really was. <laughs> Just like I needed to have that because. With Maison Death, um, usually the original French term is uh, Maison Place, which mm -hmm. means you know, in, in its place, so to speak. So when you're working in a kitchen, you know, whether your own or commercial, okay. you want to have all your items chopped, you know, grated, whatever it needs to be ahead of time. Because if you're trying to do all these things as you're cooking, you end up having things burnt, <laughs> things that are rubbery, you know, just so it's not just, oh, I'm trying to look like I'm on a, a food channel. But instead, it's trying to make sure that you are organized enough. Also, too, you have less mistakes when you go through uh, a recipe. You read it. I know that this is slightly off topic, but it's actually on topic. Hmm. Reading a recipe is like pretty much going through life. You want to read the recipe first just to see, hell, do I even like this? Second time you go through it to really get the idea of what do I need to chop? What do I need to prepare? Do I have these things? What do I need to buy and purchase in order to make this happen? So you get those things. The third time you read it is as you are making it. So you have less chance of making errors. So it, 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 you're going through that. So hence Maison Place. Uh, with Maison Place, I end up doing Maison Death because people that love mysteries love puns. So I was like, hey, everything in its death. Um, <laughs> just I'm such a little kid. Um, but I really wanted to write queer fiction that had nothing to do with um, coming out 
Um, it's not saying that that's not valuable, but I just really didn't want to tell that story. And I also didn't want to go the way of erotica. There's nothing wrong with that, but I didn't want to tell that story. I really wanted to be, you know, I really wanted to see a story that was in the middle, that it was our normal, that it was an adventure, that it was something fun and joyful, and also had that the costumes were not brown, but the people were. Because a lot of times, as you know, in the steampunk community, it's like, okay, where are the brown people? Where are the black people? And you end up reading all these stories where it's once again whitewashed. And it's like, you, you do know that in the 1800s, black people were everywhere. Like, where do you think we were? We went from, you can't write history where it's like, we're writing from slavery, you know, being enslaved. And then you have us sitting at the lunch counter. And I think I had said this at our the panel that we met at. I'm like, mm. you have it where black people are like, where's Waldo of history? And that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, my ancestors, people made things, they invented things, they did all this really cool stuff. Mm. And it's erased as if we did not exist until. Um, and so I wrote Maison Death based on restructuring the steampunk world. I made it where the Civil War never happened, that a lot of the slave revolts um, and the riots were successful. So I wrote it from the perspective of what would happen if the United States did not hate us. What would have happened um, when you don't have a whole bunch of men and women and people dying um, due to you know, horrible things in history as well as just things in life, how much technology would you have and how much further along would it be? And so that's what I, I base my steampunk world on. So I did like this whole Bible for it. So with Maison Death, I wanted to write about a chef that her perspective is more of the humanities, more of society, community, uh, kind of in the, the lower end, not lower as in, you know, uh, social economics, but more of the small town stories to tell. And, but they're still tied to what's going on in, in, in this world in a political way, but really more small town. And obviously with her siblings and whatnot, I'm working on writing different series that tell, uh, on one side, it's telling about the full on political aspects. So one sister is going to be having a heist. So she is more of spy network and whatnot. Um, I fell in love with her. I cannot wait to write her story. Um, and she is trans. I knew she was trans right from the start. And um, I was really, really in love with her. And the editor I had at the time, they were like, you are writing way too hard about this character. Like, are they the main story character? And I'm like, no, but I love them. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you know, I bring people back from like novellas and whatnot. But with Maison Death, it was more of, let me write this murder mystery based on the steampunk chocolatier. Um, and she, I was like, but where are we going to go with this? Because I didn't want to just write a straight on mystery. So I thought, and this is usually how my story ideas come. I end up having these ideas and then paring it down to um, how do I describe this in at least one sentence so I can understand it. And even to this day, it's been like 10 years since I wrote it, but the concept was, what happens if Lucy and Ethel were a lesbian couple in the steampunk universe solving murder mysteries? <laughs> and that's exactly what Maison Death is. 
Like that is exactly how it is. Oh my god, that's such a good pitch. See? <laughs> See? <laughs> so yeah, and that's what happens. And I I it took me a while to find my voice. That this was the the story that I switched gears, not to use puns, but if it works, whatever. But that's when I realized that my voice is more comedic in tone. Because mm. before Maison Death was like very very serious you know we're solving the mystery and we've got gears and we've got airships and we're very serious about this and i was like oh, bitch please you're depressing me um and so i depressed myself way too much and so i just I switched it up. Mm. yeah i talked to myself in such a way where i'm like oh nobody has time for this so it, when i wrote maze on death it was to cheer myself up because some stuff was going on mm. so i start writing uh comedic scenes and pieces just to cheer myself up and it got to the point where there were moments where it was silly and I wrote one scene and it was supposed to only be a paragraph. And I was supposed to write a quick little scene because it was supposed to just give you a clue and then pull you to the very end as far as, you know, um, the who done it, why done it. And instead I was feeling really blue. So that paragraph became a couple of paragraphs. Then it became a page. And then it became like three pages. There's a paper mache horse head. There's like a, a, a male brothel happening. Like, and just all this stuff going on. Let's just say the person proofing it, she was laughing so hard she was crying to the point where her family's like, are you okay? And like, what are you reading? She's like, I can't. Like, you know, she's like, my daughter was like young and couldn't let her read it. I'm like, mm-mm. So yeah, it was, I still love that scene. I'm like, it's one of those was it Chekhov's theory of if you have the gun in act one, you better bring it by act three. And that's what I did. So like in the opening of the first, was it first chapter of Maze on Death, I have a brothel that is run by a woman and it, it hosts men. So mm-hmm. men that, you know, clientele, men, women, non-binary, trans, like basically they are there for you. Mm-hmm. And I loved putting that in there. And I was like, oh, that's funny. Like, ooh, look at that. I made a little ha-ha. And then later on, I was like, well, I need to get this plot, plot point there, but I don't want to just kind of slap it there. And it was so much fun. Like, how stupid can I make this? Like, to the point of just ridiculous, but it makes sense because, well, if you're going someplace to have your physical fantasies, you know, really, you know, explored and... Like, how do we go with this? And so I ended up nicknaming it the ring toss scene. <laughs> yep. See, immediately I know exactly what's going yep. on in this scene. Oh my gosh. Like, even thinking about it, I'm, I'm going to get into giggle fits. Like, I always do. It's been years, and I still think about this. Like, yeah, I, I don't think I'm ever going to be able to top that, but that was fun. So with Maze on Death, I know I've talked a lot about it. We can cut this. Um, <laughs> no, this is all going in. Are you kidding oh, me? That yeah. ring toss scene is going to kill people on this book. Are you kidding me? But it's, it's fun. And so the I cannot wait to write more about this world, especially with that you know family and that, that weirdness happening. But writing Maze on Death was definitely something that pulled me out of my morose. Um, and it also, it was something that a friend of mine, they got to hear me create the steampunk universe prior to all of this. And so when they passed away, they passed away before it was published. And, you know, prior to that, I was kind of writing really, really depressing stuff because I missed them. And then I was like, this is not what they want for me. 
<laughs> you know, I'm depressed myself. Hmm. They're like, bitch, I'm dead and I'm so depressed now. Like, you're not helping anything. <laughs> Even in death, I'm sad now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, could you pick it up? So, and that's what I did. Hmm. When I, I think that there's, there's like, there was a lot that resonated with me. That's why I just stayed quiet. But like, <laughs> but like, what what's really resonating is that idea of like, you, you can't necessarily force your voice. Like, your voice is your voice, and you should absolutely write in it. And sometimes it can take a little while to find that voice, even if you know your voice. Your voice can change, and like, you're finding that voice again is absolutely like what led to what's sounding like I I have to read this book. <laughs> that scene at least oh my gosh i yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm trying really hard not to giggle (laughs) and i had a lot going on like i purposely started like building up character stuff that was going on that i would have missed and if if i would not have written that comedic scene i would have missed a lot of opportunities and that was one of the things where i decided to write comedy um and the friends that I have, the peers that I have, their their writing is a little, you know, sometimes it's a little haha, but it's not, you know, really pushing that, you know, gut, you know, busting kind of laugh. And it took me a while to be comfortable with this is the way that I am. This is what works for me. But I also found that I was able to address certain really deep, heavy things, but do it in a way that was a little bit more approachable because that's just the way that my personality is where I want to talk about some heavy things, but I also want to do it in a way that like keeps the oxygen flowing. You're not always Mm -hmm. depressed and it's not dismissing things, but you know, there's still this weird comedy in the, in the middle of all this. Mm -hmm. In, uh, in one of the most recent episodes that we released uh, about shrill on Hulu, my friend, Chloe Kozer, who's a a comedian, professional comedian, done things with UCB, done things with uh, a lot of other stuff. One of the things that she was talking about was when the comedic character, the -the over-the-top character becomes serious, suddenly people listen. And I feel like that's true, especially in a piece where there's either a lot of comedy or even just like really big moments of comedy. Once it gets serious, people really listen to that. And I think that's... Yeah. Uh, and that's what I, I've learned. Um, I used to write urban fantasy and mm-hmm. I had uh, some professional you know, friends, friends that like have been in the industry and they read it and they're like, this is really visceral. This is absolutely amazing. You know, I really feel that I'm there. This is heartbreaking. But it got to the point where I'd get like three chapters in and I was not in a good way. Um, and you know it just it wasn't i wasn't okay because it was bringing up so much stuff and instead of writing being the outlet it was not an outlet it became just something where almost a dear diary here's some depressing shit um (laughs) and it was like Hmm. i don't want to keep writing that like it certain story concepts i still adore and i'm still trying to figure out how to rewrite them in a way but I just realized I couldn't do that. Um, And so it took me a while to, I took a step back and that's when I I really took the time to figure out my voice. Um, And it wasn't so much like, is that my voice? But I noticed that each time when I was, I left myself alone to just write and write and write, I would always write comedy. So then when it came to like interacting on social media, I'm seeing all these people, they're like, oh, I got this book out or, oh, I'm talking to this person. I'm like, that's really professional. That's really cool that's not really me. (laughs) And so, 
you know, I'd be writing about like some weird shit my kid did, you know, and it wasn't like, my kid's like, he's so delicate flower. I'm like, my kid is awesome. And this is why. Here's some weird, funny shit he just said, you know, <laughs> and people I are love, like, you're right. I love so yeah. much of that, by the way. That's some of my favorite stuff from your, from your shit Menashe says, because like, he'll be like, ooh, what'd they say? Did I get a lot of likes? I'm like, go sit down. So, <laughs> I'm like, ooh, you got 27 likes. Now mm-hmm. sit down. So, <laughs> or or uh, with nerd, you know, like coupleship conversations. And so when we'd go to, um, events um and i'd be selling chocolates and they'd be like nerd and nerd would be like i'm famous i'm internet famous and i'm like oh jeez so yeah <laughs> between those two i'm like whatever we have to you know extend the door frames with the big heads that are oh my gosh we have to go sideways through the door i'm like that's great <laughs> and i mean it, it kind of keeps things going and it also keeps my writing chops up i mean i would love to write as a comedy writer but i don't really feel like i have the chops for that so i just kind of keep i stay in my own little pond and work with that and on occasion I'll, obviously i'll talk about the family and some weird shit that they did so mm. and they always give me something and people are like are you making this up i couldn't i don't have that level of you know mm-hmm. you know working that quickly like there's just some weird stuff anyway <laughs> It's like, no, I am a reporter for very strange life. That's what it is. Oh, so I'd love to talk more about you and being a chocolatier. Chocolatier? Chocolatier? It doesn't matter. I'm going to pronounce it poorly anyway. (laughs) You're doing just so how did you get into being a chocolatier? Because it's something that, like, it's a job that I know people have. You have it. <laughs> like, I don't even know where the first step is. Like, what? How did you get into this? Somebody knocked on my door, asked me if I believed in the Lord and Savior Jacques Tort. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> oh, that <laughs> oh, that's how it works. Um, actually, no, I was not about chocolate. I didn't like cooking. I never cooked. Didn't know how to cook until I was in my early 30s. Let's just say I'm not in my 30s anymore. Um, I am level four or five. So <laughs> like I, I'm leveling up mm-hmm. much older. Um, I am not, not a level three anymore. Um, but I was not into cooking, but you know, my son came into my life and I was like, one of us needs to learn how to cook. And I don't really think it's going to be the short person. Um, so, and I didn't have that skill. Um, I never learned. And because I I'm socially awkward and I don't really see how things are supposed to go. I just see what the opportunity is. There was a culinary school about a 20 minute subway ride from me. So I was like, that's what I'll do to learn how to cook. I'll go to culinary school. Like, because nobody was going to teach me (laughs) and, and people don't have time for that for the basics. So I worked more as an intern. I couldn't afford school. So I worked behind the scenes and that's, you know, partially where, Maison Death and, you know, Chef Alex LeBeau came from because I would interact with all these people and it really is a weird offbeat family. So watching that happen and as I got more comfortable, you know, learning how to cook, because even though we were setting up things or prepping everything, we weren't in classes like the students, but because we were all working as interns pretty much, you know, cheaply free. Yeah. Um, 
the chefs knew that we really wanted to be there. So they would take us under their wings and show us all sorts of tips and hints. And it was the basics that we already, you know, we started to know, but they were giving us more insight into stuff that was behind the scenes. So I started learning how to cook that way. And then I, I don't know, it was like one moment in time, I knew this uh, family from Switzerland and they came back out and they gave me a box of chocolates and I took a bite and I was like, wait a minute, why does this taste different than anything I've ever had in the States? Um, I don't understand. And because I'm curious by nature, I was like, you know what? I need to understand why this chocolate tastes different. So I ended up talking to these different chefs and then it kind of expanded into something more. And I started doing internet research. And obviously I work with a lot of librarians because, oh my gosh, the rock stars. I started asking more questions and we also had a culinary librarian. So I started asking them more questions about chocolate and it just pushed from there. And that's what, what gave me that, that lead into finding more about chocolate so much so that I ended up getting trained in it officially and I'm a certified professional chocolatier. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's really cool. Like, ah. Uh. So, so just from not happenstance, like you definitely made it happen, but at the same time, like that idea of like, ah, I got to figure this out. Okay, I guess I'll do this. You just, you did sort of like fall into becoming a chocolatier. Yeah. That's so yes. cool. <laughs> and prior to that, I was um, a licensed massage therapist, a licensed yoga teacher, and I was aromatherapist. So when people are like, those are all weird things. Like that doesn't make any sense. And I'm like, they actually do. Um, and also with the aromatherapist part that worked out in the culinary field, because when I was working with other chefs, there was a chef that was a mixologist. Mm. So he would take things that were seasonal and he'd make all this delicious booze. And so I learned from him behind the scenes. And then mm. I also did work with a wine historian. So I learned about pairings and things like that through him. So when it got to me, when it got to me creating my chocolates, I'm pulling from all my life experiences. I'm pulling from their life experiences and putting things together. So when you see a lot of my collections or different things that I've sold as far as chocolates, you know, I've got the blueberry lime, you know, so it's like, oh, okay, that makes sense. You know, I've got the tried and true, you know, salt, sea salted caramel. And then I'll have things like dulce de leche banana split, or Ooh, you know, I'll have it does sound yeah, good. <laughs> it's stuff like that. Yeah. I remember when I kept selling dulce de leche. I'm in New England, mm -hmm. and I'm not saying that nobody knows anything. They do, but mm -hmm. I grew up in California, so dulce de leche. You know that mm -hmm. speaking wise, it it just made more sense. But out here, people are like, "What the hell does that mean?" And I was like, "Okay, you're not dumb. I know you're not dumb. So mm -hmm. let's make this a little bit more approachable." So I was like, mm. okay, what can I mix with this that still lets people know, kind of like gives them an idea. So it was mm. like, okay, dulce de leche banana split. So that's when I started realizing too, with marketing, you you don't want to alienate people that are adventurous enough to want to try your stuff. So like mm. kind of bringing them in, <laughs> don't, don't get too crazy, but just enough. So mm. usually it's like the first one is, you know, the first bite is free or this one, you know what's going on. And then later on I have these customers, my, my bittersweet army, as I call them, and they will try anything. I was like, hey, I got this weird flavor. Anybody want to try it? <laughs> like, hell yes. Yes. Like, it's yeah. just so much fun. Well, and, and especially like I, I know you mentioned the the aromatherapy being something people were very confused as to how that would work. Correct me if I'm wrong, but like a lot of your sense of taste actually comes from your smell, right? Absolutely. Or 
Mm. Absolutely. Um, and so I started pushing with that. Years later, <laughs> one of the chefs that I work with, and I knew that they wanted to do uh, a charcuterie type of shop, which now I always giggle because there's that meme of shark coochie board. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> like shark coochie board um and they spelled it shark coochie board i was like well you do you um <laughs> now i'm in exactly i'll have to send that meme to you um <laughs> but the chef that i worked with later on he ended up having um he had a book published and it's called flavor matrix mm. it is amazing and it you, you kind of look at it it's a little intimidating when you start opening up the pages but the cool part is is he's talking about different pairings things that you wouldn't think work well and you see where it unfolds and you're like holy crap and it was like yeah i remember having conversations with him about this and it was like oh this is nice so it was like going down memory lane and looking at his work but yeah when it comes to aromatherapy going with that sense of smell but also pairing things that you may not have thought would work um, and things that do work that you already know about. When I did, um, I mentioned earlier when I had taken my honeymoon in Japan, in honor of that, despite some of the crazy things that were happening when we got back home, I wanted to remember the beauty of Japan and my experience and you know, really having that, that amazing adventure. And so I created uh, the sakura plum marshmallow praline so it's cherry blossom plum and marshmallow and you think like that's really weird <laughs> but it actually works i was it gonna say is... see i immediately see that as like oh no that yeah i see that working but yeah. sorry go on yeah no no, no. And, <laughs> yeah. and that's that's the way that my my mind kind of processes things i also mm. discovered because when i didn't put such a when i didn't edit myself too much I realized that when I was writing my stories, I didn't, I thought everybody else had this, but each scene kind of represents food for me. Like it, it has a taste. I don't know. It's just weird. Um, and so partially, you know, writing a scene and I was like, this is cherry blossom plum marshmallow kind of scene. And I know now keep my mouth shut because that's just, people are just going to be like, that's weird. Um, but it, it's different flavors like that, pulling them together, finding that that joy. A lot of my chocolates are not so much of keeping you at bay, like, oh, only if you have this refined palate. It's like, you know what? I really want to play with this, and I really want you to have fun, and I really want to invite you, the taster, to have fun with this, because food is supposed to be fun, um, and really wanting to play it in, in that, that sandbox, so to speak. And it it kind of reflects more of how I see things because I've been on the outside for so long in so many different communities and not feeling like I fed in. And so when I decided to create the chocolate company, I wanted to create a community. So that has always been like the first and foremost. So we find, you know, we have these adventures, we have these different flavors that we taste and, you know, we're, we're tapping into different places, different people and different experiences, but we're also coming together with this mutual understanding. And so that was my motivator. And so that's what I hope to bring when it comes to the chocolates. I'm curious if there's a, a either like a flavor combination that 
you put together that you didn't think would work but did work or the opposite where you're like okay this is definitely gonna work and suddenly you tried it and you're just like never again <laughs> yeah um i people got pitchforks and 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 torches when i did a jellied earl gray in chocolate like instead of me yeah, instead of me mixing it in as a ganache i decided like okay i'm gonna make this slightly separate for the for the mouthfeel and people were like mm-hmm. We're gonna cut you. We're, we're gonna cut you. <laughs> they mouth felt it, and they did not mouth like it. Oh yeah, I oh yeah, I got my feelings hurt. Oh, I got my feelings hurt, and I was like, "Okey doke." Um, <laughs> one that I did at a tasting because I was doing tastings in the beginning, and it was just kind of testing out some stuff. And I've never done it again, but it was interesting to see people's reaction. I did a blue cheese chocolate truffle. I swear to God, it worked. Oh, yeah. It worked because it has that saltiness, that creaminess. Mm-hmm. It melted. Like, it was amazing. But it was interesting because the people that were at this tasting, there were, it, you could, it suddenly became two groups. Before they were all together, then it became two groups because mm-hmm. the one side was like, you know what? You gave us all this really great stuff. I'm not eating that. I was like, that's fine. And then the other group was like, that sounds weird. I want to taste it. Put it in my mouth. And I was like, you're my kind of people. So <laughs> See, I'm so, definitely group two. I'm definitely group two. Yeah, right there, and that's, I was like, I'm here. I'm here for this. <laughs> yeah, I was like, these are my people. You mm-hmm. like weird shit? I'm going to give you some weird shit. And, and so we did, you know, they, they were eating the blue cheese chocolate truffle and they were like, this really works. I'm like, I know, right? Like, I didn't think so. Um, but yeah. Or there's, um, I have a new collection coming out finally and it's a honey collection. So I'm doing a hot, um, hot honey. So it's, you know, got all these spices and peppers and I'm doing like a honey cinnamon roll, you know, all sorts of good little, little things. So it's nice. It's fun. Mm. So now how, like, if you don't mind me asking a lot more about like the business of it, like, how does that work? Do you put out a collection and then sell through the collection? Is it just for certain time periods? Like what, how does, how does that work? Well, because I had done a lot of selling at events and now obviously because of what's going on that, that kind of slowed that down, which actually it did me a favor in regards to, I was overextending myself. Um, and also, I just feel better selling online. I, I don't mind events, but it's very taxing for me on an emotional level because I love people, but it's a lot from, believe it or not, I'm an introvert. So it's a lot to kind of gather that energy and really be outgoing and be there for people. And then, you know, it takes me weeks to like recover from that. And it just, it was a little too much. So when it came to those events prior to that, people, whether they knew it or not, were my guinea pigs. And they were my market research without me telling them that they were. So I would put out like all these different flavors at different events, see what sold, got feedback from people. And I just listened and listened and listened and start putting things together. And so when I started putting uh, collections together, um, I was coming from, uh, okay, which ones are the favorites? Which ones pair well? Which ones give a nice little, like if I'm doing um, the garden collection, I have like peach melba. Um, I have strawberry rose. I'll have a watermelon mojito. Uh, you know, different Whoa, things. Whoa, what? Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> See, once again, like, what? Yeah, I'm here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that was one of the things at our reception. Um, there was no mm-hmm. booze, but there was um, 
there was a salsa which had watermelon, um, uh, feta cheese, and mint, and it worked. Huh. Yeah, we had like little mini taco stations. We had like all sorts of weird stuff. So you know, coming from that, that weirdness, and um, you know, pulling from from that level of uh, food exploration and adventure. So from understanding that, because I take meticulous notes about each and every uh, chocolate that I make as far as what's in it. Like I know the percentages and I know how much it costs for me to make the the one or the several hundred. So I know exactly how much and what I'm putting into everything. Um, and from there, putting collections together. I don't sell individually like I used to because obviously no events, but I found that collections work to give a showcase of my my stuff, but also when people are a little too overwhelmed because I'm not a well-known name yet, it gives them something to like, okay, the, this is, you know, you know, the five or six, you know, T to sane, you know, collection. So, okay, we know that we're going to get Earl Grey. We know we're going to get Oolong Mango. We know that we're going to get these things. So those are familiar, but as you know, I'm starting to get more clientele, I'll be expanding again into more random flavors. I mean, I tested out 300 different flavors for a few years. So I know um, around 80 or 90 of the ones that have been my best sellers. And I always keep that in the back of my mind. I had a graphic designer create uh, from something that I really wanted to do. She created a periodic table Mm-hmm. And I had her create it using the names of my different chocolates. Oh, that's cute. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> and so they're, they're color-coded. So there's the classic flavors. There's the boutique bars. There's the dark chocolate. There's the milk chocolate. There's the spicy. There's the cocoa. You know, there's the coffee. And, you know, it's just, yeah. So my my mind kind of works in so many different areas like i said transmedia where we're looking at the visual we're looking at the play for that mm-hmm. and i and i love that mm. so. like it it reminds me of like eyeshadow palette production just immediately <laughs> like that idea of like the oh it's it's so many things but it's also like you're getting it for a very specific reason and you're getting it like in this very cool thing that's so cool yeah <laughs> and that was the place that i found that i fit like mm. i i didn't fit anywhere um and I still struggle with that on, on different occasions. It's usually like, you know, trying to, it's on, you know, low days. But mm. when it comes to making chocolates, when it comes to writing my stories, if that's the subject matter, I do all right. And that's where I know, okay, this is where I fit in. And if people are listening or people are engaging with me, I'm, I, I don't have anxiety. I feel pretty cool about things. And, and it's like, okay, we all get it. And like, this is collective and this is community. And I like that part. Yeah. So out of, out of curiosity, we, we sort of started talking about this. Does your writing and your chocolate intersect in any way? Like, is there a storytelling element, storytelling element to your chocolate? Or is it just uh, more, because it sounds like a lot of the inspiration where it comes from that idea of like both, like you say, the marketability as well as some sort of potential visual or some sort of potential combination. Uh, but is there more uh, to the, the way that your writing and your chocolates intersect? Yes. And that was by accident. I discovered that by accident. Um, Years ago, I decided, oh, okay, I'm going to write this steampunk chocolatier story. Well, that took a little longer than I expected. And then, you know, I was working at the culinary school, so I, you know, 
start making some chocolates. And I was like, this is cool. And then I'd have my friends read different parts and they're like, I'm getting really hungry. And I was like, oh, okay. And they're like, do you have anything for me to eat? Because you're making me hungry. And I was like, oh, hey. And so I started making chocolates. So I put chocolates together so you could taste them as you're reading parts of the story. Mm. And it, it came from that, I am so dating myself. It came from that place of when I was little, we had, you know, like really bad television. It was like, oh, 3D night where you go to 7-Eleven. I know. I know. Go to 7-Eleven, you get your 3D glasses and, um, you know, or you get your little scratch and sniff and <laughs> in your 3D glasses. And you'd watch, you know, that night you watch you know, something on UHF, not, not the Weird Al Yankovic story, even though he's great, but, you know, actual Weird Al's UHF. But... Yeah, which is cool. Yeah. But, you know, you'd watch and it'd be like, oh, this smells like popcorn. And then they'd have like the little thing that says, scratch and sniff the popcorn and you'd be like scratch and sniff the popcorn and you're like ah. so <laughs> so i always love that and that's where i'm coming from like half the time so you know sometimes the stories you know parts of the scenes would come and i'm like this scene is an italian strawberry shortcake kind of scene and i end up like writing the actual you know full thing in there uh or this scene is really morose. Oh gosh, you know, this, what does this remind me of? Like, mmm, it tastes like chocolate chip ice cream sadness. I love it. So, <laughs> it was like, it, it, it became, what can I do to make this interactive if you have my chocolates with you? Um, so it became that you're not scratching and sniffing, but you're reading through like, oh, okay. You know, Chef Alex LeBeau is, you know, talking about that time her friend was in Japan and then she made this thing and it had cherry blossoms and plums. And it's like, I'm not exactly saying, no, this is the time for you to take a bite. But by that time, hopefully you have it in your hands and you're like, mm, I'm about to eat into this. I am feeling like I am there. So, yeah. I feel like I feel like the message that this is sending me is that I should eat this chocolate now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That bite there, have that experience and move on to the next scene. Just, I love doing that. And also I used to work with kids. So, and they're pretty blunt and they are funny. Like I tell people, they are like tiny drunk people without the booze. Yep. They're cool. Like, <laughs> they are, they're mm -hmm. funny. Um, but they'll let you know, like if it doesn't work, they're like, that sucks. <laughs> right. Well, thank you. Thank you, Timmy. Can you can you tell me more about why it sucks? No, nah, it just sucks. It's like, all right. <laughs> I'll tell you, you like, I like this because it's like rainbows and it's like you know, glitter in your face. And I'm like, okay. So I come partially with, with that in mind. Like, mm -hmm. does this scene bring glitter to your face? You know, does it, does it, you know, does it resonate? Does it, you know, make you go, you know what? I really wonder what that tastes like. Oh, now I do. Now I understand what's going on and giving that experience because I really wanted to, we think about chocolate and we think about, you know, how it's only for certain occasions, especially as Americans. We only think that it's for somebody else or that we're not supposed to enjoy any sort of gifts. And I really wanted to reach beyond that. And especially with American clientele, you know, give that experience and give that gift to oneself and have that adventure. And, you know, even if you're not able to travel, being able to taste different flavors, which are from different parts of the world, and just having that literally in a box for you. So. Yeah. Well, I think I think that's a good place to start wrapping up. 
because wow yeah um so let people know how they can look more into your chocolates as well as maison death okay so chocolates belmont chocolates gotta spell that one out b-e-l-l-e-m-o-n-d-e chocolates so uh if you do the translation it's beautiful world chocolates so the whole taste of adventure passport to flavor that's my shtick um you can find me on instagram i'm usually talking about you know chocolates weird thing is is people are really into when i'm putting out like oh i organized this thing i get just as much likes <laughs> on what i've organized <laughs> on top of what i like chocolates i've made and i'm like okie doke so you'll you'll see like i organize my closet and people are like 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 <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like There's a lot of closet organizing in chocolates. Got it. Yes. Is well, this it's like, your particular niche. <laughs> I'm like, okie doke. Um, who am I to complain? Uh, so, so I'm on Facebook as well. You know, with Belmont Chocolates. Um, on Twitter, uh, Chocolate Bell, C H O C O L A T B E L L E, because Bell Chocolates was already taken. So don't go for that. Go for mine. Mine are better. I'm not saying anybody else sucks, but I will have hurt feelings if you don't tell me I'm I'm pretty. Um, I'm sure, they're lovely, but they're not you. <laughs> <laughs> I will give you the side eye. So yes. <laughs> and also to find my books uh, on Amazon, you can also check me out on my website, which I'm in the middle of changing things, but you can still find me, NikkiWolfalk.com. So in I K K I, W O O L, F O L K dot com. Awesome. And I'll make sure that I include those links in the description of the podcast episode, as well as on our website, which is isittransphobic.com. We got that. We got that sweet.com. Uh, <laughs> you can also, if you are listening to this on Patreon, you don't need to know this because you're already on our Patreon, but you can go to patreon.com slash isittransphobic to hear these mini interviews one month ahead of time before I put them out to the public, uh, as well as episodes one week ahead of time before they go out to the public. Uh, and finally, if you really loved an episode, if you thought that this, uh, if you thought you know, that this is your favorite yeah like if you heard this episode and you're like all right i want to go buy that book i want to go hopefully get some chocolates maybe uh and then you say but ashley did a great interview and you just want to get me a coffee go to ko-fi.com slash is a transphobic and buy me a coffee buy ashley some coffee tell me i'm pretty <laughs> two in one it's two in one. honestly it's win-win it really yep. is <laughs> awesome nikki thank you so much for joining me today Thank you for having me. Is It Transphobic was produced, edited, and coordinated by Ashley Lauren Rogers. The original music you heard was all created by Vivian Aladrin, who you can find on Bandcamp at vivianaladrin.bandcamp.com.